If you have your Bible today, turn with me to James's letter, the fifth chapter. Today's particular text is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin, and let's just hear, well, we're going to actually hear the end, uh, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 5. Take a couple of weeks with this text to wrap up, but today to begin, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. And our Father, as always, we know that we can hear your word and it can go right over our heads, but we pray for the Spirit's working in our hearts now as we listen in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're nearing the end of James. I must say, if, nothing, if I've, done, I've gotten nothing else accomplished in these weeks we've spent in this letter, I hope that every time from now on you read the letter of James, you'll just have blinking and like giant red lights on your mental dashboard, Genesis 3, Genesis 3, Genesis 3. And what's Genesis 3, you Bible scholars? It's Adam and Eve and the tree and the serpent, right? It's that moment when humankind, for the first time, came to this fork in the road which is more trustworthy, God or our desires? Now, there's nothing wrong with desires, but if your desires are not pulling you toward what God has said, you've got a problem with your desires. And that fork in the road, many of you, I mean, you live with this every day. You, you come to that fork, but this was the first time. Should we trust God or trust our desires that are pulling away from God? And, of course, they went with their desires, and things fell apart. The world became full of sin and misery, and that is why we need a new creation, because the old creation was just marred and ruined and uglified by our sin, and new creation is what James is all about. That's, this letter, you could just say, it's a, it's a letter about new creation. James is all about that. As a, as a faithful Jew, as a, and now as a Jewish pastor, he has always understood through his whole entire life, even before he met, even before he came to believe in Jesus, he's just always known God's going to create a new humanity in Abraham's family. Like, that's what we call the Old Testament, that's the story. God's going to create a new humanity in Abraham's family. But he's also, as a faithful reader of the Scriptures, he knows that there's been a major problem in Abraham's family all along throughout their story, and that is that Israel, you know, the, the, the seed of Abraham, very much like Adam, they don't really receive the word. You know, they don't really listen when the prophets speak to them. And eventually they don't listen when the Son of God himself their Messiah, the Word of God made flesh, speaks to them, and so they kill him. But then he rises from the dead, and now since Jesus' resurrection, James, still a faithful Jew, right? He still believes the Scriptures. He now understands that God has numbered the days of old Adamic Israel, Adam-like Israel. He's numbered the days of that old Israel, and he's creating a new truly Abrahamic Israel, who believe God like Abraham did, Jew and Gentile, it turns out, which is exciting, 
And these are the Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus. They know that he's God's answer to the sin and misery problem. He's the savior of the world. These are the true tribes that James is writing to. And he knows that it is in these followers of Jesus that everything that the Torah, the law of Moses and the prophets envisioned in God's new creation, all of that is now going to be fulfilled in these followers of Jesus. They're the ones who, unlike Adam and unlike rebellious Israel, they're going to be the ones who, are, who live under the Father's word, who are nourished by the Father's word. And as they are nourished and grow under the Father's word, they're going to become, here's James's word, they're going to become perfect. Now, when you and I hear perfect, as we've said, we hear sinless. That's not what perfect means. For James, perfect means they're going to become mature. They're going to become full-grown humans. They're going to become the kind of humanity that God intended for Israel when he gave them the Torah and the prophets. They will eventually, in James's language, be lacking in nothing. But you know, Pastor James is a realist. You got to hand it to him. Being a pastor tends to do that to you. <laughs> and he realizes that, you know, life at the end of an old world and the start of another world, life at the end of an old dying creation and as a new creation dawns, life in that transition is not easy. And it's not easy for these readers. You know, those powers that killed Messiah, they're still around. They're still in power. And these readers, these disciples of Jesus, they're persecuted, they're scattered, they're marginalized, they're exploited. They suffer famine and sickness and other ills of the time. And it would just be so much more comfortable for these people, some of whom are on the run from the Jewish authorities, it would be so much more comfortable if they could just stop listening to Jesus, this crazy rabbi that they've come to understand is the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel, they could just stop listening to him and just go back to their old life in Second Temple Judaism, you know, that Judaism under that massive temple that King Herod built. They would just be so much more comfortable. Life would get so much easier for them. And so James is writing this letter, and he's just reminding them in a very loving way, if you turn from the Word, beloved, go back to Genesis 3, if you turn from the Word, you're turning away from life. And if God's Israel, God's people turn away from his word and from the life that his word brings, what hope is there for the world? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And we need to hear that today, I think. I know a lot of you, and I get there too, you're very wound up about all kinds of things going on in the world. It is easy to forget the most crucial thing you can do to be an agent of life and change in this, word, in this world is to live under the word yourself. If we're not under the word seriously living under the word, then how on earth do we expect to be agents of change in the world? But it is hard. It is hard, and James knows it. And so in closing, what he's doing here is he gives us a couple things. He gives us a practice for life at the world's end, the end of that old world, and next time we'll talk about a perspective he gives on what God is doing through the lives of these people under God's word. But today we're going to start with this practice, and it is, I must tell you, the boring old practice of prayer. And some of you immediately are like, time for a snooze. He's going to preach on prayer. Prayer is so boring. Well, we'll see if you still think so by the end. I want to talk to you about, as James does, about constant prayer, communal prayer, and capable prayer. We'll move through this fairly quickly, but I just want you to notice some really interesting things that go on here. First of all, you'll notice in verse 13, he just talks about constantly praying. And you'll remember from the very first chapter, the opening verses, in fact, that these readers are going through, he says, count it all joy when you fall into what? What are they actually living in? 
various fiery trials. And he gives specifics throughout the letter of kind of what that looks like in their lives. And you'll notice if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Some of these people are not doing well with that. They're just not. They are suffering. They are hurting. They are, they are just struggling. Many of them, as he said in chapter 1, painfully lack wisdom as they're facing the things that are afflicting them. What does that mean? They lack wisdom. It means they cannot really feel God's presence with them. They don't really see his purpose. They're not really sure what he's doing. And they themselves don't know what to do. Like, God, here I am. And, you know, my boss is making me work and not paying me out in the fields. Or, you know, this rich person has got me, is suing me in court because I'm a follower of Jesus. Or, you know, whatever it might be. These people are in, you know, a famine has struck and they're just hurting. And they don't understand what to do or how to think about what's in front of them. And what does James say back in chapter one? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, what? Let him, what? Ask, but he says very particularly, ask the giving God. God, he describes God in a very specific way. God, the one who gives liberally. That's the God you need to go talk to. And pray in faith. Ask him in faith for the wisdom you don't have without doubting. Like you're gonna have to stir your heart here to remember who, you, you have your own small, tiny, domesticated, frankly, very unworthy thoughts of God. You know, God is, he doesn't love me, he doesn't really care, he's very distant, you know, whatever, you got a lot of static in your head about God. You need to remember how God has said he is. How God has revealed himself to be, especially in Jesus Christ. If you are suffering, go talk to God. Go pray in faith, looking to him as he's revealed himself in truth. And what you will find as you pray constantly in these sufferings is you will find you are not alone. You have not been abandoned. You are not without hope. You'll find, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that you are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Do you feel the difference, beloved? It's one thing to be afflicted in every way, and quite another to be crushed you will find that you're perplexed but not driven to despair. You know, it's one thing to be a perplexed. I'm perplexed like 99% of my life, but I don't need to be in despair. You're persecuted, but you're not forsaken. You have a friend, you have a benefactor. You're struck down, but you're not destroyed. You'll find that you have God in that suffering. I want to read you a little something from a man named Todd Billings who wrote a book called Rejoicing in Lament about his journey through bone cancer. And this is an excerpt from his journal in the hospital as he's just in extraordinary suffering with bone cancer. And he's thinking as he writes this about Peter's words when Jesus one day, a bunch, he says some stuff people don't like and a bunch of people leave. And he says to the disciples, you're going to go too? And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And he's reflecting on that in light of this when you're suffering, pray. And Billing says, when we are in need, like in a cancer journey, we really know how deeply Peter's question strikes Where are we going to go? We serve a God who doesn't promise to be convenient, who doesn't promise to put our own preferences at the center. Indeed, we serve a God who speaks to us words in Christ, such as, if anyone wants to be my follower, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In many ways, it would be nicer to have the therapeutic God of American culture who's always tolerant, never requires much of us, and just affirms what we do and provides a pathway to our own happiness. Maybe this would be a God who always cures cancer in exchange for fervent prayers, shows his favor with monetary and physical rewards, or makes a hero of every cancer survivor. 
Yet even though this kind of therapeutic God is common in American culture, such a God is revealed to be an idol by the one who calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross to lose our lives for his sake, to find life, not in ourselves, but in nourishment in Christ. Peter's question is an honest one that cuts through our pretenses. It would be nice to serve a master who did not have hard teachings. But really, where else are we to go? When we're in need, we're not just trying to pass a correct theology test. We want results. There's an attraction to these idols. But really, where else are we to go? Jesus is the I am. He is the way. He is the one. Deep down, we know that we follow Christ the Lord in our need, not because he's the most convenient view of God around, but because he's the Holy One of God who gives us the words of life. With Peter, we realize that many of the most important things in life are completely and utterly out of our control. So we pray, seek to abide and seek to obey and wait on the Lord, as the psalmist frequently says. We have nowhere else to go, really. (laughs) We're fooling ourselves unless we admit that. Nowhere else to go. Are you suffering? Pray. Now, others you'll notice in verse 13, still in constant prayer here, others you'll notice are actually doing well. Is anyone cheerful? Sometimes the saints are cheerful. You know, there are are moments when we're, we're strong, you know, we got our hand in Jesus' hand, we're encouraged, we're counting it all joy, you know, God has given us grace, and we're, we're feeling pretty good, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, I, I pray for that, you know, for you guys, and, and, and James says, if that's true for you, you know, no, no, don't hang your head, you just take that cheerfulness, and you take that to God, too, your Father doesn't want to hear from you only when you're miserable, the only time you pray is when things are awful, man, you know, that's not a relationship with the Lord, If you're cheerful, then sing. Sing to him with thanksgiving. But no matter what your situation, whether you're suffering and you're just really hurting and you you lack wisdom or whether you're doing all right, you know, you're walking the walk of faith and you're pretty, there's joy in your heart, just go to God, pray, sing, be with your Father. Constant prayer. And you'll develop a walking fellowship with him. But then in verse 14, he turns to communal prayer. Is anyone sick? Different, Different direction here. He should call for the elders of the church. Now, what this tells us is that there are some sufferings, beloved, there are some joys in our lives that are between us and God. And there are some that are not supposed to be just between us and God. There are needs of your body and needs of your soul that God wants you to experience in fellowship with his saints, with his church. Specifically, he wants you in these particular needs of body and soul to have a fellowship of prayer with and for each other. You should not be alone with these things. And notably, he talks here about, under communal prayer, two things that should drive us toward the body of Christ. One is sickness and the other is sin. I'm going to begin with sickness. And you'll notice in verse 14, Christ does not want his people to be alone in their illness. That should just be a standing thing in the church. Jesus does not want his people to be alone in their illness. And I'd add on here, including mental illness. Now, I'd like you to notice a few things about what he says about sickness here under communal prayer. A few things about sickness. You'll notice there's availability, there's anointing, and there's anticipation. Let's just briefly go through these. Availability. If someone is sick, they should call. Now, here's the thing. The church needs to be on call. The church needs to be available. And you think about these readers. A lot of them had been uprooted from their lives. Many of them at one time lived in Jerusalem, and now they're scattered all over the kind of the Roman Empire, 
some of them on the run from persecution. They've been uprooted. Their lives are very hard, very laborious. I dare say they probably work hours that, you know, might even exceed our, uh, you know, the hours we work here in, in, in the 21st century. They are extremely, extremely short on resources, many of them. They have every reason to just be lost in their own little private struggle to live and, you know, survive. And yet they have committed themselves to be a people, See, you you and I are not necessarily obviously a people. But for Jesus Christ, there's every reason to think you and I would not be a people. We'd be out just doing our own thing. But God has gathered us to be a people around his son and to be all filled with his Holy Spirit and to have that actually result in a body life. And these people have committed themselves. It's not just me and I go to church. It's, it's, It's we are a people in this place where we find ourselves maybe far from home, very uncomfortable. This doesn't feel like home. It's a maybe in some ways a miserable existence. But we are here together. And what that means is we are available to each other when things get rough and we are in times of need. I am, whether I want to be or not, my brother's keeper. I'm on call for hurting saints. And you know, Jesus really, like, you know, dropped the... He threw down the gauntlet on this in Matthew 25, didn't he, when he said, I just want to be very clear. There's coming a final judgment in which these are the kind of questions that are going to be asked. I, I, was, in, I was sick. Did you visit me? I was in prison. Did you come? I was hurting. Did you show up for me? And if you didn't show up for my, the least of these, my brethren, you didn't show up for me. There's availability. I absolutely loved the way you guys responded when Bonnie was so sick. Absolutely loved it. Just the mobilization of availability and prayer and being with her. And she's back with us. I mean, that, that was just a perfect illustration, availability. And then, then the weirdness starts. Let the elders pray over this sick person, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, you know, some of you used to be charismatics like me. You're like, here we go. Bringing out the anointing oil. Going to get exciting. All right, well, what's, what's, what's going on with the anointing oil? If I come to your house and I pray for you, should I bring a little flask of oil, pour it, pour it over your head, you know, anoint you in the name of Jesus? Is that what James is saying? Well, let's think a little bit about oil, the anointing here. There were, very, there were two very clear purposes of oil in the Jewish Bible. You guys, I'm sure, know them well. One of them should immediately come to mind. One thing oil did throughout the Jewish Bible was it marked something with God's ownership. This is God's furniture. This is God's house. This is God's priest. The other thing oil showed in the Jewish Bible, it was a sign of joy. Psalm 104 says, God gave bread to strengthen man's heart, wine to make his heart glad, oil to make his face shine with that gladness. Isaiah speaks about the oil of gladness instead of mourning. An unanointed face, in that dry climate, you'd look, you'd look rough if you didn't have any anointing oil on your face. And an unanointed face was part of fasting, was part of mourning rituals. So there, it was a sign of joy, and it was a mark of God's ownership. So what did this anointing mean to these Jewish readers? When a, when a Jewish elder came and anointed this sick person with oil, what was being communicated? Well, first of all, I think we need to really dismiss any idea that there was something kind of magical here, you know, kind of this Benny Hinn, boom, and the oil, and you're healed, and, you know, whatever. And I, you know, I actually grew up where that was kind of what was expected. That was, there was nothing magical about this. 
And I don't think the dominant idea is that there's anything medicinal going on. Now, oil had medicinal purposes, but that doesn't seem to be the main idea here. The elders would gather, they would come to this person, they would anoint this person with oil, and it was a very simple ritual that just reminded everyone watching in that sick room, we're praying for someone here whose body belongs to Jesus. This body was marked with the name of Jesus in baptism. It was sealed for resurrection. We're praying for one whose body is owned by Jesus Christ. And so in sickness, as well as in health, this body is the Lord's. It's a body he's going to raise from the dead. It's a body that is owned by the Lord of heaven and earth. And because of the name of Jesus that is marked this body, and everything that name represents, it is the name given under heaven by which people are saved. Because this body is marked with the name of Jesus, even in this suffering, there can be joy. Can I read to you from Billings again? He says something I'd never really thought about. He said as a cancer patient, he got a little bit troubled by the fact that on prayer updates, people kept giving data reports on like what his cancer markers were. All this data in prayer meetings about so-and-so, the sick brother or sister. And notice what he says related to this joy thing. He says, updates and prayer requests can tend to define the person being prayed for by those numbers or data and thus unintentionally dehumanize them. Even in the darkest moments of their struggle, there are people who laugh, make fun of themselves, enjoy or hate their latest meal, wonder about the future, and reflect on the past. They're not defined by a one-colored sadness or hope-laden lens, even when they endure some really nasty bone pain or experience a really terrible loss in relationship or of another sort. Yesterday morning, in the midst of my bone pain, now he's in a cancer ward, I noted to my new nurse that her patient not only has a doctorate, but was watching PBS cartoons during his breakfast time. What a great episode of Curious George. Also in one of those prayer updates, I noted that one of my moments of greatest delight this week was that for a whole hour on Tuesday, I felt alert enough to read it from a long, nerdy book about the Trinity and Providence. Pleasure reading, of course. One nurse said I needed a head examination. For me, there's something humanizing about these interactions as I tie some of them into my cancer journey. I don't want to be seen just as the cancer guy or the need in the body of Christ, but as someone who's facing a tremendous struggle yet also has so many unexpected and undeserved blessings, someone who really enjoyed the chicken tenders at lunch. I was rejoicing about hospital food today. Someone who likes to make silly jokes to his three-year-old daughter. Someone who's really glad that most other people aren't as much of a nerd as he is. Cancer does not define me. Ultimately, my life and identity in Christ define me. I'm a quirky, sometimes silly, sometimes, okay, often serious person who's been saved from his sin by Christ's cross, united to Christ by the Spirit to live as one of God's adopted children. That should be the Spirit around a sickbed. I'll never forget being in Jim Kalutis's sickness with him. He was hours from death, and he was talking to me about what he was watching on National Geographic. And the anointing oil is a mark. There is joy here because Jesus. 
So in non-Jewish contexts, is it required that if I show up to pray for you or the elders show up to pray for you, I should anoint you with physical oil? I don't know that it's required. But the ministry of the elders and of the saints to God's sick ones should always tangibly reflect, tangibly, concretely reflect those two truths. This brother or sister belongs to Jesus. This illness does not define this brother or sister. And so his joy should be our strength here. We can laugh because this does not define us. That, I think, is the point of the anointing oil. And then there's anticipation, because we are not done with the thicket here. There's anticipation. The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, but God will raise him up. Now, what do you do with that, beloved? Because, again, I came from a background where, you know, if you believe hard enough, God would heal the sick. I remember my best friend's father contracted uh, lung cancer in the late 1980s, and we prayed as a church, and we believed, we believed God was going to heal him. I mean, God spoke prophecies. There was stuff going on. And we were sure he was going to be healed. And I will never forget trying to wrap my mind as a young man around the fact that in January 1993, he died. What's he saying when he says the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up? Well, there are two things here. One, God is telling us something very simple, which is that God heals in response to prayer. He does. And I'll just be honest, if you're too Presbyterian to believe that God will heal in answer to prayer, then you need to really repent and read your Bible more closely. God will heal in response to prayer. He does that still. There are none of us that have, I don't believe anymore, a gift of healing, where when Ben Miller comes to your house and he brings his handkerchief and that handkerchief touches your body, you shazam. No. But God heals people in response to prayer. Some of you have actually experienced that. And we should anticipate our Father's mercy in doing that. But the really kind of troubling thing is, what does that phrase, the prayer of faith, mean? Because here's, here's, here's how people read this. Let them anoint him praying, and the prayer believing God's going to heal him will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Is that what the prayer of faith is actually saying? Does the phrase, prayer of faith, mean prayer believing that healing is going to happen? Here's what I'm asking. Is the prayer of faith, that little phrase of faith, the faith in this prayer, is that faith focused on that particular outcome of healing or is that faith focused on God from whom we're asking the outcome of healing? And if you're not tracking with me, this is a very big difference. Is what you're believing that God is going to heal or is what you're believing in God from whom we are looking for an outcome as a God who loves us and cares about us. See, one way of reading this is, if you pray believing God will, if you pray, let me put us, make, make this stronger, if you pray really believing God will heal, then the prayer of faith, that prayer of faith will save the sick. The other way of reading this is, if you pray really truly believing in God, just trusting in God, resting in God, one of the outcomes that you will sometimes see is that God will, he will heal. He will, he will heal the sick. That, that happens in response to those who trust in the Lord. But that distinction matters because in the first case, if, it's, if you truly, truly, truly believe, then you can know God will heal. If you truly believe that gift is going to be given to you, then God will give it to you. Then what happens if it doesn't, if it doesn't come? What happens if the healing doesn't occur? Well, the only thing you can really conclude is one of the elders is having a really bad day in faith. Somebody's faith failed. Because if you really truly believed, 
If you're praying the prayer of faith, you believe that outcome was going to happen, then the outcome's got to happen. That's the only thing you can conclude. Well, then you must, not, you must not have believed. Whereas in the second case, if that prayer of faith simply means you pray and you entrust this to God, you trust in God as you pray, then what it's saying is your children and you trust your father and you just simply keep on trusting your father and your father gives good gifts. He gives good gifts and you should anticipate him giving good gifts. But the practical difference is that the prayer of faith when it's focused on God, not some outcome, means my resting place is God, not the outcome. And so while it is absolutely true that God grants healing in response to those who trust in him, that is something he does. That should not be a shock if the Lord does it. We also know that God may in his wisdom grant a different outcome. Being the all-wise father, and because he is the object of our trust, not the outcome, whatever happens, our faith remains settled. Your faith is not shaken because it's fastened on God, who does give good gifts like healing and gives gifts like not healing, too. See, we believe as Christians everything God has promised in Jesus. One of the things God has promised in Jesus is that he will sometimes give grace to heal. You know what else he's promised in Jesus? Grace to suffer. Grace to suffer even unto death. All of that's promised to us in Jesus. Different kinds of grace for different things that God determines. And we believe all of it. And so the prayer of faith, fixed on God, not the outcome, it looks unflinchingly to God's goodwill in the situation and his unshakable love that was secured to us by Jesus' sufferings and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. That is where it rests. And as it rests in him, one of the things you should expect is for God to heal and answer to prayer. And if he doesn't, your faith never skips a beat. You'll also notice sin. Communal prayer and suffering, but also in sin. You'll notice if he's committed sins in this prayer time, he'll be forgiven. Christ doesn't want his people to be alone with their sin either. An elder ministry to a suffering sick one may uncover their spiritual needs here as well. I've had this by people's bedside. All of a sudden, they start opening up their heart. There's sin they want to talk about. We can take that sin to Jesus, and it can be healed. That may be more of a relief than a physical healing in some cases. But what I'd like you to notice in verse 16 is that this ministry of confession and prayer is absolutely not confined to elders. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed in body and soul. You don't need to call Pastor Miller to come pray for you or one of the elders. You, you should, and we are glad to come, but the body of Christ is to be there for one another as we wrestle with sin and sickness, body and soul. And all of this emphasizes how seriously God takes our prayers. We have not because we ask not so often. And it emphasizes how seriously we should take our duty before the Lord to be with one another and praying for each other in our earthly afflictions. It's a very, very big deal in sickness and in sin. So constant prayer, communal prayer, and very quickly as we wind down, you'll notice the capabilities of prayer. Man, I don't know. The end of verse 16, after he says you should pray for each other, you should confess your sins to each other, you should be with each other working through this stuff, he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Remember Elijah? Beloved, I just want to just set before us again, the promise of our Father who answers prayer 
is that when you and I pray as the church in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit according to the will of God, we are capable of moving mountains and shaking powers. The prayers of the early church caused God to pick up the mountain of old apostate Israel and throw it into the sea of the Gentiles. The prayers of the righteous bring down powers. I'm going to have a lot more to say, God willing, about Elijah next week. But for now, I just would like you to remember about, a little bit about Elijah, that at the darkest moment in Israel's entire story, it doesn't get much worse than you've got a king named Ahab who actually imitates and consciously seeks to run his kingdom like the Canaanites that Israel displaced. He wants to bring back all their immorality, all of their Baal worship, all of their sick, disgusting practices like child sacrifice. He wants to bring back all of it. He wants to, like, get God out of Israel and just restart, you know, Canaanite life. It doesn't get much worse than when that's like the king of Israel. And it's in that awful, disgusting moment that this guy named Elijah shows up in camel hair, munching on locusts. The greatest and most colorful prophet between Moses and Jesus shows up out of nowhere, and he is not a superhuman. James says he was a man with a nature just like you and me, and you know, he, he's the guy who prayed and the rain stopped for three and a half years, and then he prayed and it started raining, and he's the one who prayed and God sent fire down on the altar when the 400 prophets of Baal couldn't get anything to happen. They couldn't get a spark with all of their dancing and cutting themselves and doing their various things, but he was not a superhuman. He was just like you and me. He prayed. He was an obedient man of prayer, And because he knew and prayed according to God's will, God allowed his prayers to be the vehicle through which God brought down upon the earth his fierce judgment. And the end of that regime, the death of Ahab, the death of Queen Jezebel, the death of 400 prophets of Baal, God brought that judgment down. And the the famine, you know, the the three and a half year famine, God brought brought that down on Israel through Elijah's prayers. And then when it was over, God brought the refreshing, restoring rains. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is when Elijah says to Ahab, you better get your chariot and get back to your city because I hear the sound of abundant rain after three and a half years because I've been praying and it's coming. And James is writing this to these saints under the powers of Jerusalem and Rome because through Jesus the Messiah and his saints in James's time, and it's still true in ours, God is going to use the prayers of his saints to shake the earth and to bring down his judgment on the powers that oppose him. The church needs to pray, rise up, O God, and defend your cause. And God will. And he will use us to grant the rains of heaven that will make the salt marshes and the parched wildernesses of this world fresh and green as the gospel goes forth by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not because of Elijah, it's because of Elijah's God. You know what Elijah means in Hebrew? Yahweh is my God. And it's because of his God, that's what his prayers are capable of, and so are ours. I'm going to wrap up. I hope you don't think prayer's boring anymore. If you do, you're hard to inspire. But two practical directives and we're done. Two things in this text. Number one, I want to encourage you guys as you pray to learn to say in your prayers as much who God is as what you need. Learn as you you pray to say as much who God is as what you need. It is who God is that's going to lift your heart in prayer, whether you're praying in suffering or praying in joy. And if you need prayers, old prayers, new prayers to give you language of who God is in prayer, I'll send you piles of stuff. But learn to say who God is. And the second thing, and then we're done, is I want to encourage you guys, please find a way to pray together. And then just do it. I don't understand some of y'all. You just won't show up for a prayer meeting. 
I don't get it. We got Wednesday nights on Zoom. Have a morning prayer call with just one other saint who's got a similar schedule to yours. I know some of you are already doing that. That's excellent. Get a little ladies group together. I know our, you know, our Finger Lakes Fellowship, there are ladies up there, they just get together once every two, you know, Tuesday mornings. They get together, they just pray together. Sunday, Sunday before worship, show up like 20 minutes early. Get together in the, you know, the, the, the library, just pray if you can. We got the first Sunday of the month prayer meeting. This Wednesday, we're having a day of prayer and fasting. I'm going to be disappointed. Not that it matters what I feel or think, but it's going to be disappointing if we don't have a, a crowd for that, beloved. We need to pray. We need to fast. Jesus said certain things happen only by prayer and fasting. So, I mean, we put it at 8 o'clock so we're past y'all's commutes. Please come. Please come. Because a church that will not pray is a church that has showed something about its heart. It's a church that doesn't really believe what God has said prayer will do. Do you believe what God has said he will do in answer to prayer? Then we will pray together together because where two or three are gathered in Christ's name he will hear an answer that's it that's the practice so let's do it father we ask you to make us faithful and fruitful constant and communal in this powerful task in Jesus name amen